Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you after a couple of weeks away. It's very thankful to Templeton Travel and the opportunity they provided for us to be able to uh, go on a Journeys of Paul uh, trip. A week ago today, we were in Corinth, and then the week before that, we were in uh, Ephesus, and it was just a great opportunity. Deeply thankful. I'm thankful for Michael uh, filling the pulpit over the last couple of weeks and reminding us that uh, uh, we are called to become fully, not mostly, I love that, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I'll talk to you about the Apostle Paul for a minute, uh, maybe a little longer than a minute. The Apostle Paul went on three missionary journeys recorded for us in the book of Acts. Uh, almost half of the New Testament books were written by Paul uh, to these churches that he either planted or visited on those journeys. Other books were written to uh, apostolic delegates sent by him to pastor these particular churches, like Timothy and, and Titus. Um, now, central to his third missionary journey was the city of Ephesus. Uh, we read that incredible story in Acts chapter 19. He had actually visited Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey on his way from Corinth in the west uh, back to Jerusalem and Antioch to report there. And when he visited Ephesus, he left behind Priscilla and Aquila, uh, who were both tent makers and believers like him. Uh, a short time later, after reporting to those churches in Jerusalem and in Antioch, he made his way back to the churches in Galatia that he had planted on the first missionary journey. You remember Antioch, Iconium, uh, Lystra, and, and Derbe. He then traveled further west to Ephesus, where he planted himself for stayed there for over two full years. And during that time, we read that all those who lived in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. That is, they heard the gospel, which means this is likely when many of the churches of Asia Minor uh, were planted, uh, to include um, the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, to include Colossae and Hierapolis, for example. So he's hanging out in Ephesus. Ephesus was a, was a major city, a, a huge city. Estimates place the population somewhere between 250 and 300,000 inhabitants. Some say it was second in importance only to the city of Rome. Located on the Caesar um, River, it was a port city on the Aegean Sea at the crossroads of three important trade routes. They had come under Roman rule uh, in the second century, late in the second century BC. Um, while it wasn't the capital uh, of Asia Minor, it was undoubtedly the most important city of the province. The Roman governor uh, even lived there. So important was the city that th three who's who of the Christian faith hung out there. Uh, Timothy spent time there pastoring the church. In fact, First and Second Timothy were written by Paul to Timothy while he's in Ephesus. So important was the city that Paul wrote one of his letters to Ephesus while he was under house arrest in Rome. So important uh, was the city that the apostle John spent the last three decades of his life there. In fact, it was in Ephesus that he wrote the gospel of John and the three letters that, that bear his name. Tradition tells us that he was exiled from Ephesus uh, to um, the island of Patmos, where he, well, where he wrote the book of Revelation. So important was Ephesus that it was the first of the seven churches of Asia Minor to receive a personal letter from, from Jesus. Well, you know, through John, which inclu included the rest of the book of Revelation. 
Ephesus was indeed an important city. It was central to the expansion of the Christian church. Not only was it an important Roman city, it was also, you should know, a hotbed of both pagan and emperor worship. And in fact, the seven churches of Asia Minor all vied for being the ones that were the most important for emperor worship. Part of the pagan worship involved the occult practice of the black magic arts, no doubt demonically inspired. There were also temples of worship to several emperors, Julius Caesar, for example, later Hadrian, but, but Domitian, under whose reign John was exiled to Patmos in the 90s. You see, again, it was, it was thought among the churches in Asia Minor, if you worship the emperor uh, rightly, you would receive special treatment from Rome, and indeed they did. But these temples right on the city's main street, and, and by the way, the city's main street went from the harbor, it was 35 feet wide, uh, column lined right up into the city's um, cent central district. It, it was absolutely amazing, but all of that paled in significance to the temple of Artemis. The, the Roman name for Artemis was Diana. She was the goddess of the hunt, but not for Ephesus. For Ephesus, she was the goddess of fertility. Her, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, here's an artist's rendering. I have to show you an artist's rendering because it doesn't exist anymore. It was, listen, it was four times the size of the Parthenon in, in Athens. We were just there, and the Parthenon is huge, tiny compared to the Temple of Artemis. The temple was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide. It had 127 marble columns. In fact, it was the first temple made entirely of marble, and over 30 of those columns were covered with gold and jewels, which rose 60 feet in the air. It was a sight to behold. Inside was not, well, not specifically a statue of Artemis, but a likeness that some surmise was a meteorite that had fallen from the sky. But, but the carved images, the carved idols of Artemis, well, they were grotesque. I'd show you a picture, but grotesque. Again, she was the goddess of fertility, and her likeness was a multi-breasted image or a multi-egged image. She was served by thousands of priests and priestesses who were nothing more than temple prostitutes. You see, that's the way that you worshiped, engaged in sexual immorality, not unlike our culture today. While they don't call it idolatry, it's the thing they value most, and so it has become an idol. The, the temple, the, the worship, and those Grotesque silver likenesses of Artemis brought many worshipers and much economic wealth to the city. Back to when Paul first visited the city, about 51, 52 A.D. We don't know for sure. There's no remains of a, of a synagogue there, but he first met 12 Jewish men, and it only took 10 to make a synagogue, so we suppose there was one there. 12 Jewish men who we read in Acts 19 had believed. We're not sure what because they had not received the Holy Spirit. In fact, they had only been baptized into John the Baptist baptism, which was a baptism of repentance and to prepare for the coming of the Messiah Jesus. So Paul preached the gospel and baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they received the Holy Spirit. Presumably, it was then that the church of Ephesus was born. The, the Jews then ran Paul out of that I suppose, synagogue, and so he went next door to the Gentiles, that's what he did, where they met in the school of Tyrannus. 
Later, shortly later, God was doing some extraordinary miracles through Paul such that even his handkerchiefs or his work aprons used to build those tents were taken to sick people who were then healed. Why? Some were even delivered of demonic possession. Remember, this was a hotbed of the occult. In fact, there were seven sons of Sceva. Sceva was a Jewish priest who wanted... Now, he wanted to do what Paul was doing. I mean, it looked pretty cool. And so they tried to exercise a demon, but the demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who the heck are you? Well, they, they didn't probably say heck. The, the demon then beat them up and they ran from the house naked and bleeding. And the, the, the news of this spread rather quickly and, and widely, such that the name of Jesus was magnified and, and, and believed. The church of Ephesus, well, it caught fire. We, we read that many brought their magic books filled with those spells and incantations, and they publicly burned them. The value of the books well, was placed at 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, one piece of silver was a day's wage, and so I did the math for today's dollar, just about $10 million worth of books. Now, you should know something else happened. As I said, the city's economy was tied to pagan worship, especially the worship of Artemis, the silversmiths, well, they made lots of money selling little silver trinkets and those gross idols of Artemis, but with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, the trade, well, it began to suffer. And so led by a silversmith named Demetrius, they started a riot. They ended up in the city's outdoor theater that was said to hold about 25,000 people. By the way, that theater still exists today. Uh, the, the people gathered there in, in opposition to, to Paul and his gospel. They began shouting for two hours. Can you imagine for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, we gather at the rock and, you know, you can get the, the students or the, 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 to say, app stayed. It lasts for, I don't know, 30, 60 seconds, two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul wanted to go to the theater, but he was prevented by the brothers. They knew if he showed up, they would likely tear him limb from limb. And so soon thereafter, after the crowd was dismissed, a few days, maybe weeks later, he left for further west to Macedonia and Greece, where he continued strengthening the churches that, that he had planted in that second missionary journey. But at the end of that third journey, he headed back to Jerusalem. Interesting thing is that he knew that arrest and imprisonment and perhaps even martyrdom awaited him. So on the way back, he stopped in Miletus, which is just to the south of Ephesus. He didn't have time to go to Ephesus. He wanted to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. Uh, so he called for the elders of the church to meet him in Miletus. We read about that in Acts chapter 20. It's a familiar passage. It's a long passage, but I, I want to read it to you. I want you to look at it with me. This is the last thing that Paul said to the Ephesian elders of the Ephesian church. It's important. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, that's Asia Minor, how I was with you the whole time, over two years, and serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. That's a recurring word. And, and with, with tears and, and with trials which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. Remember, they threw him out. He had to go to the school of Tyrannus. And, but I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house 
from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and now, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But that's okay. I, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now, behold, I know that all of you, none of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the, the whole purpose of God. In two years, I, I, I preached the whole Bible to you. I don't know how he did it in two years, but he did. Beyond, therefore, I'm leaving. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or to pastor the, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Stop right there. I've shared this with, verse with you many times. I believe this is the most significant verse in the Bible that declares the deity of Jesus Christ. The, the church of God, which he who is that God purchased with his own blood. Who, who shed his blood for the church? Jesus, because, well, he's God. Don't miss it. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, they always run it up, uh, three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears, and, and now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among those who are sanctified, that is, those who have been made holy, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. There are people in our country that need to, in ministry, that need to hear that. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me in everything I showed you. Listen, look at these words. That by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it's better, it is um, more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep. There it is again. They began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. That's a long passage. But I read it because I want you to notice three very important things. First, Paul and these people loved each other deeply. There were lots of tears, especially when they heard that they would never see him again. I'm reminded of that, that old hymn, Blessed Be the Ties That Bind Our Hearts in Christian Love. The story of that song is that uh, there, was a, there was a pastor who, uh, in the countryside of England and who was a good pastor and a good preacher, and so he was called up, if you will, to, 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 to preach in a, in, a, in a church, I think it was in uh, the city of London. And so the people, they, they came to help him pack up his house, and they, they're, they're loading it in the wagon through many, many tears, and they're crying and they're weeping, and he realizes how much he loves them and how much they love him, and he looks at him and he says, unpack the wagon, I'm staying. And then he wrote the song, Blessed Be the Ties That Bind Our Hearts in Christian Love. These people 
Paul. They, they loved each other deeply. Second, Paul talked about how he worked hard among them and encouraged them to work hard in this manner to be able to provide for the needs of people. And then third, he warned these elders to guard the flock because false teachers, savage wolves, would arise to devour the sheep. Protect the sheep. Because Ephesus is an important city with an important church. Through Paul and his associates, and a faithful church was planted. The gospel went out from this city throughout Asia Minor. Don't miss that. We're going to talk about that, Lord willing, next week. Faithful churches plant faithful churches. If we're going to become and multiply, we need to become and multiply not only disciples, but faithful churches. It's no wonder Jesus, through the Apostle John, who spent many years there, would address this particular church, bringing us full circle to the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation was written to people suffering for their faith. Persecution had begun, and it was only going to get worse, especially at the end of the last days, just prior to the return of Christ. So John receives this revelation from and about Jesus. He reminds his, his readers that Jesus is coming with the clouds. Remember that chapter 1? He's coming with the clouds, and, and every eye will see him. And then he received a vision, a, a magnificent vision of this exalted, glorified Christ who, who told him to write uh, to, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He was to write of the things which he had seen, likely in this vision of Christ. He was to write of the things which are, because Jesus is among the churches, and he holds them in his powerful right hand, and, and he is to write of the things which shall take place after these things. I think the rest of the book then is future. And so now, Jesus dictates seven letters uh, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Seven, speaking of completion and, and, and perfection and totality. In fact, a careful study of the seven letters reveals seven characteristics largely present in all of the letters. Here they are. First is the command of the angel of the church to write. And second, Jesus gives a self-description, which actually comes from that description in chapter 1, but he doesn't repeat the whole description. He just takes the part that is appropriate for the specific church that he's addressing. Third, there's a commendation of each church if they were to be commended, you know, except for... Laodicea. Fourth, there's an accusation because of some sin in the church, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, the second and the sixth church. And fifth, there's a call to repentance. There's a call to repentance and a threat of judgment. And sixth, there's a call to listen to the message of the Spirit to the churches. And then seventh, there's a promise to the one who listens and overcomes. These seven letters cover all of chapters 2 and 3. Lots of discussion about them through the years, the most common but most but recently and rightly rejected idea is that these seven churches cover seven periods of the church age. The Reformers even taught this, starting with Ephesus and a downward spiral all the way to Laodicea. Uh, most agree today that, that that's not what we have here, that these were seven actual churches. They were, and these are, they, they had some specific qualities, some good and some not so good. That is, they needed commendation and some needed correction. And, and the qualities of these seven churches represent churches at, of all times and in all places. 
That is, don't miss this, churches will face some or all of these challenges in their life cycle. Oh, you hear what I'm saying? We, we can see Alliance Bible Fellowship in many of these churches, meaning these letters to these churches are letters to Alliance today. John starts with Ephesus, says it was the most important church in Asia Minor, and it's also the first church that you would come to after leaving Patmos and starting on that circular postal route. So let's read, finally, the text for today. Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7 say this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and, and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That's all really, really good. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you. And will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what the Spirit says to this church. We'll simply make our way through this letter, examining those seven elements found, again, in most of the letters, the angel of the church of Ephesus, self-description of Christ and why it's specific to Ephesus, the commendation of the church, the correction of the church, the call to repentance, the call to hear the Spirit and the promise uh, to the overcomers. Yes, I, I understand that is seven points, but that simply means it's a perfect sermon. Besides, we've already covered most of it. For example, Jesus says uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. We saw a couple of weeks ago that the word angel in Revelation, oddly enough, means angel. This likely refers to an angel who represents this church before God and is somehow responsible for this church. Some want to suggest it refers to leaders or our leader of the church. It could be. I don't think so. Regardless, the point is this church. Here's the point. The church is to hear what Jesus has to say through this angelic messenger. Are you listening? How does Jesus characterize himself? That is, from the description in chapter 1, what does Jesus highlight for this specific church in Ephesus? He says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, you should know that there are two subtle yet significant differences in these words from chapter 1. The, the one who holds is a different word than earlier. In chapter 1, it was simply that, the one who holds. But this word is different. It's, it's stronger. It's the one who holds tightly, the one who grips the stars in his right hand. It speaks of Jesus' firm and sovereign grasp 
of the church. You see, the first and the last churches, Ephesus and Laodicea, had some rather significant challenges, and Jesus wants them to know, I hold you tightly, and I'm in control. Are you listening? Second, notice in chapter 1, Jesus was among the lampstands, but now he walks among the lampstands. This highlights his presence in the church, his presence in this church. He's omnipresent. He's present with his churches and and is in a position to know what's going on. He knew what was going on in Ephesus. He, He knew what was going on in Laodicea, and he knows what's going on in this church. And further, he knows what's going on with you. You may think nobody knows. He knows. After all, this is his church, and you are his bringing us already and rather amazingly to our third point, the commendation. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil. Three things. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. Deeds is a general word for work. Your toil, that is your work, is hard labor. That's what the word means. And it knows their perseverance through all of it. That, that, that's good, isn't it? That seems positive. This church works hard. Just just like Paul encouraged them to do. They hadn't forgotten Paul's final words to the church. He had set an example, remember, of working hard. And he encouraged them to follow his example. And they did. In fact, the word for toil is the, is the word to work to the point of exhaustion. <laughs> These people had given it all for the church, just like they were supposed to. There was no such thing as burnout in this church. Jesus knew their deeds, their hard labor. They worked hard. Their programs were the best out there. And it was, and it was good. And they had, they had persevered. That is, they'd not grown weary. They'd not given up. And now, now, now some of these, sure, these were likely second-generation Christians. It was their fathers who had gathered with Paul and Miletus and heard what he had to say, but their fathers had clearly taught them, and, and they had listened and learned, and they'd con- continued the faithful work in the midst of a culture that opposed them. It's good, right? Not only that, they didn't tolerate evil people. It seems like that, that, that this church even practiced church discipline. Nobody does that today, but they did. They didn't tolerate evil people. Further, they had put to the test those who called themselves apostles. Now, these weren't, they weren't calling themselves apostles as like one of the original 12. Those were well known. Uh, They were that special group of people who would walk with Jesus. No, this word apostles spoke of traveling itinerant teachers to the churches, messengers sent by Jesus and the church uh, under the authority of the church to teach Truth and doctrine, they claimed, again, positions of authority. But these were, these were false apostles, false teachers who, who traveled and, and taught falsehoods. And, and the Ephesians had put them to the test and found them to be false. And isn't that great? I mean, isn't that what we want to be as a kind of church that can spot heresy and call it out? And tolerate it. Why, why would they do that so well? Again, they remember what Paul had told them, that after his departure, savage wolves would come in among them. So they were on the alert, ready to defend the faith and defend God's people against false teaching and false teachers. That's good, That's good right? Further, they had persevered. 
They had endured much in this pagan town. Remember, remember the people that gathered in the theater? 25,000 greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, they had endured much in this pagan town which opposed their gospel. And they noticed they had done it for his name's sake, not for their own name's sake, not for the name of First Baptist Church of Ephesus. It wasn't for their notoriety or their fame or their fortune. No, they had worked hard and persevered and protected the church for Christ's sake. That's all good, right? It is. It is good. But the letter to Ephesus does not end there. Which means we can do all of the right things, but if we don't do it with a proper motive, we're missing it. Verse 4.4, they needed correction because Jesus highlights a rather significant failing, but I have this against you. Can you imagine Jesus saying to us, I have this against you? That you have left your first love. That is, you have left the love you had at the first. What is that love that you had at the first? You remember that, don't you? When you first became a Christian? How much you loved God? How much you loved Christians? How much do you love the Bible? You remember that, don't you? Lots of discussion. Almost everyone agrees that it at least includes a love for God and a love for one another, but many also point out it includes a love for the lost. You remember that, don't you? Why, why does it include a love for the lost? Because if they don't repent, Jesus will remove their lamps then. The fact that they're to be lights in the world. Apparently, they weren't being lights. The light had grown dim. I'm reminded of our six purposes, core values that we've grouped into. We want to increase in our love for God and love for the church and love for the lost. Those are right and good words, aren't they? Are we? They'd become deeply committed to working hard, to doing the right things and teaching the right things and defending the faith against falsehood and heretics, but they had become so committed to doing right and saying right that they had lost their love for God, that they lost their love for each other, and they'd lost their love for lost people. They'd become a fortress, fortress mentality where the lost outside the church remained lost, where the battle was turned inward, and, were, and where they perhaps served one another but with no passion of love toward one another. I would suggest that this church was going through the motions well. I mean, if you looked at them, they, lo they looked like an active church. They looked like a good church. They were doing and saying the right things, right? And the words of Jesus come flooding back. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your solid teaching, by your love for one another. And when asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus responded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one's just like it, to love your neighbor. And in that context, it's both those inside and outside the church. Two commandments. Here they are. You ready? Here's your two commandments. Love God and love people. They were doing right. 
They were saying right, but they were not loving right. Therefore, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, to do right and even amazing things without love is to be nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Lots of activity, lots of noise, but ultimately meaningless. Do you understand that we can do the right things, teach the right things, say the right things, but if we do not love, we are failing miserably? And Jesus stands against us. They needed correction. So what was the church at Ephesus? Perhaps, perhaps, what are we to do? Three things in verse 5, three R's. I preached this 30 years ago. I need to preach it again. Remember, repent, and return. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember how you used to love. You remember that, don't you? Uh, That's what Christians do before they grow cold. That's what Jesus said would happen. Repent. Confess your sin, but don't just confess it. Change. That's what repentance means. And then return and do the things you did at the first. What were those things you did at the first? Whatever it was that demonstrated that you loved God, that you loved his people, and you loved the lost. And your love for people caused you to do something. Whatever it was before we became overly committed to doing the right things, saying the right things for doing's sake, dotting theological I's and crossing doctrinal T's. Now, to be clear, we must do right things. We must say right things, but they must be motivated by love. And if they don't, and frankly, if we don't, the threat is, He will come in judgment. He's not talking about the end of the age. He's talking about coming right now to judge his wayward church. How? This was shocking. This was stunning to me this week. How? He will remove the lampstand. What is the lampstand? He told us in chapter 1. He will remove the church. You see, commentary after commentary after commentary that I read this week said something like this, a church that does not love is not a church. And it does not deserve to remain, and it will be removed. The church that does not love is not a church. Notice verse 6 quickly, having just pegged them, another quick commendation. Yet you do this, you do, uh, uh, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'll save that for when we get to the church of Pergamon, but basically you should know this, it's important. The Nicolaitans were a group of people embracing the immorality of the culture and engaging in syncretistic, that is pluralistic, They look just like everybody else worshiping. Syncretistic worship. This too is a message for the church in America. Sexual immorality, 
in approving and adopting false religions, plural, pluralism, it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe it. Sexual immorality doesn't matter. I can wave the flag, it matters. Point six and seven, verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Interesting, plural churches. This is not just addressed to the church in Ephesus, but to all seven churches. In fact, it's addressed to all churches. It's addressed to this church. This is a message for us today. He who has an ear, let him hear. Meaning, here we go. Do we labor? Great programs. Do, do, do we persevere? Do we not tolerate sin and false teaching? Do we love? To him who overcomes, overcomes what? The world? Yes. But that's not what he means in the context. The context is the one who overcomes the sin of not loving. To this one, to this overcomer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which implies if you do not overcome this sin of not loving, you will not eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Because we're not a church. Tree of life we saw in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis right at the beginning of the Bible, but it disappears until the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. To the one who demonstrates true saving faith by loving, I will grant, not on the basis of works, but faith which produces loving work, I will grant that he or she may eat of the tree of life. That is, they will have eternal life in my presence. That's what it means to be in the paradise of God, in God's presence. This is serious. I have told you that we need to look at ourselves, at our church, to see if we fit this bill. To see if this describes us. And I must tell you that I've had to take a close look in the mirror this week. Those of you who have been around a while, who know me, know that I'm a pretty hard worker. You know that I'm committed to the Orthodox Christian truth, to being faithful to the truth of God's Word. I, I'm among the best heresy hunters out there. And not only that, I can be quite critical. It's not one of the fruits of the Spirit, by the way. But do I do, I do it all for His name's sake? And further, do I really love? Have I become so committed to doctrine and truth that I have forsaken my first love, my love for God, my love for you, and my love for the lost? You do understand that the lost people outside of the walls of this church are going to hell. This has been a week of introspection for me, self-examination. I want to love rightly. I want to love deeply. I've had some personal times of prayer with the Lord, asking for forgiveness in ways that I have worked hard, defended the faith, ferreted out heretics, but not loved well. I want to, and I want us to. 
You understand that we are known as the Bible church in this town. You come to Alliance to get the Bible. That's great. I want us to be known for that. But are we known as the place where people love God, love one another, and love the lost? Answer the question. Look in the mirror. Your turn. Are we known as the place that loves God, loves each other, and loves the lost? This is a great time for both personal and corporate introspection and examination. Do we work hard? Do we believe well? Do we persevere? Those are commended. Commended. We should have those. But do we love well? Now, I, I finish with this. Why was this written to Ephesus at this point in the book of Revelation? I mean, how does that fit? That's fit the context of Revelation. Because, I'll tell you, as things get harder and as we are opposed more and more, we will be tempted to do one of two things. First, we can develop a fortress mentality. We can draw in. We can go into protection mode and thereby not love well. Have we done that? Second, we will be tempted to not persevere, to betray truth, to give in to the culture, to look like the culture, to worship like the culture, to go along, to get along. And we can lose our faithfulness. And we will begin to look just like the cultural, cultural, culture around us, both sexually and syncretistically or pluralistically. Is that not what we see in the church today? where sexual sin is accepted and approved and where any teaching or any religion, pick one, goes. We must work hard, my brothers and sisters. We must persevere despite the opposition. There is a third way. We can choose by God's Spirit to love. It is, after all, the first of the fruits of the Spirit. Let's stand for prayer. Father, as I pray, I pray, this is me talking to you. Um, this has been a challenging week um, for me to study this text and see writer after writer indict Any church that does not love is not a church. Father, I believe that we are known in this community as being a Bible-teaching church, and that's great. I believe we're known in this community as a church that serves well. I, I believe that we do serve the community well. Um, but here's my question for, for me. It's a question for us as a church. Do we love well? Are we known in this community as a church that loves you, Father, more than anything, that loves one another, we'll do anything, we'll persevere, we won't grow weary. More than anything, we love one another, and, and we love the lost. We want them to know Jesus, without whom they will die in their sin. Help us to do what you have called us to do, motivated by love. Help us to get truth right. Help us to do things and say things right. But may the motivation of our heart 
be not just rightness, but love. Because you've loved us. May we love you and love others, we pray in Christ's name.